In a world where marketing leaders face the greatest challenges they've ever known, one podcast stands ready. One podcast shines a ray of hope. This podcast, the one known as CMO Combo. Creativity remains essential to marketing, and one of the main responsibilities of CMOs is building and maintaining a culture that fosters it. But creativity can take many forms, and what works for one person may not for another. Furthermore, different projects in the marketing umbrella require different forms of creativity to be successful. That's why our guest this week, Bob Sherwin, knows it's important to have a flexible approach to creative cultures, one that can support multiple methods. He's joining us to share his insight from building and leading the marketing department at Wayfair and applying that experience to a range of companies with Bob Sherwin Advisory. Hi, Bob. Welcome to CMO Convo. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me. Well, thank you for joining me, especially since you are calling from literally the other side of the world. You're in a, you're down under at the moment, even though you are originally from the States, Bob. But yeah, I really appreciate you um, reaching out to me at the, well, probably some odd hours for these kinds of discussions, but I'm very eager to be having this conversation about creativity and creative cultures, because it is something that is very, very dear to my heart. And I know it's very important to a lot of CMOs out there. So thank you for joining us today, Bob. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'm glad we could uh, schedule it in. And I apologize in advance if I um, fall asleep mid-sentence at some point because I'm uh, dealing with some serious jet lag being well, here in Australia 24 hours into my trip. I'll, I'll bet. Yeah, I can only imagine. But let, let's see if we can keep you energized with a, a very hearty CMO combo today, shall we? Um, but before Sounds we good. do get in, sorry, Bob. Yeah. Before we do get into that um, discussion around creative cultures and creative teams, um, maybe you could introduce yourself to the audience a bit. Tell us a bit about your background and, and why this topic was one that you really wanted to discuss on the show. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. So um, my, I'll give you the the quick overview of my background. So I um, spent the first 10 years of my career as a consultant, half of that at IBM right out of undergrad, where I was doing more like analytical consulting, helping organizations with big data problems and optimizing their logistics network by leveraging data, um, helping them just with better processes and better leveraging data flows uh, to, to run more efficient organizations. Um, and that was great training right out of undergrad because I got to work with senior clients. I got to really refine my skills as an analyst. Um, and it was just a good good way where I felt like I was able to add a lot of value early in my career and again, hone my analytical uh, skills. Um, and then the second part of that decade was at McKinsey, where, um, you know, a very different type of uh, consulting, where I was doing a lot more strategy work, growth work, organi organizational design, um, and then work that touches on a little bit what we're talking about today. It was probably the most enjoyable work I did there, which was training client organizations um, and really driving the change management to help instill cultures of continuous improvement. Um, and again, this was doing this with senior clients, but helping cascade that down to the front line of organizations. And 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 that was, you know, that that's a theme I actually built, uh, you know, um, leaned into when I was at Wayfair as well. Um, in the middle of those two consulting gigs, I got my MBA and Master's of Engineering Management um, at Northwestern at the Kellogg School of Management and the McCormick School of Engineering. And um, and then, you know, what happened near the end of my 10 years uh, consulting is I found myself getting very antsy to be an operator. I loved consulting. I loved helping organizations through change and helping them just become healthier organizations. 
but I had this itch to scratch is, can I do it? Can I be an operator or am I just a counselor? And I jumped at the opportunity to join Wayfair back in 2013, uh, where my first role was uh, acquisition marketing or what some companies would call growth marketing, uh, where my remit was really just find ways to grow the Wayfair brand and business in a way that was um, where, where we were driving a strong ROI. And over the course of my 10 years there, all marketing moved under me uh, for all of the all the brands. Wayfair is the mothership, and then there's four other consumer brands. We have a business to business offering, and then we also have operations in Europe. Um, in my time there, in addition to like running all of marketing, I built out uh, our physical retail team and launched our first four stores. I led our consumer sales team and a number of service lines, including like our consumer financing, our bridal registry, our design service program, and installation and assembly offerings. So my time at Wayfair was like really uh, a period where I matured a lot as a leader. I uh, went from leading a team of about 15 people. By the time I left, um, it was about a thousand people in my organization. And um, I learned a lot, right? I was able to put to practice a lot of the things I was preaching when I was at McKinsey and largely it was a huge success. We we grew the brand um, in the business uh, like 20 fold while I was there. Um, went from really being a brand that it's headquartered in Boston and people in Boston had never heard of it uh, when I joined to now it's a household name in the US and Canada market and well on the way to being a household name in uh, the UK and Germany where we also have operations. And, and I spoke about Wayfair in the past tense because just um, two months ago, I left Wayfair after that wonderful 10 years. And what I'm currently working on is um, some advisory and board work with a number of early stage and mid-market companies where I'm able to go back to my roots as a consultant and a counselor and help companies um, through a lot of the transitions that they have to go through that are highly analogous to what I saw and lived while at Wayfair. Fantastic, Bob. I mean, it sounds like you are very well suited for this discussion today because it sounds like you've had to manage a lot of different types of teams, had to be involved in the the development and the culture um, around a lot of different types of marketers. And that's kind of what we're talking about today is having a creative culture that can fit different types of marketers within your team or different teams within your marketing department, depending on how large your, your business is. Um, so yeah, very, very eager to have this discussion with you. Um, I suppose the first thing we need to cover is are creative cultures important anymore? Do we actually need them in a world where everything needs to be data driven, where we have AI for idea um, generation and stuff like that? Do marketing teams need to have this creative culture baked in? Is that something that we really need to be focusing on as CMOs and marketers right now? Yeah, I think absolutely. I would probably reframe the word from a creative culture to an innovative culture. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and, and be, I say that just to, to be clear that like, uh, being creative doesn't always mean uh, it manifests in a um, it, it just in the the creative output, but also being very creative and innovative may mean that we're thinking about how to engage with a customer in a different way, right? How do we um, introduce new touch points to the customer? How do we reframe how we're positioning the brand to the customer um, in new ways? And I think why it's more important now than ever is. The world is changing rapidly. Uh, the marketing ecosystem is changing. Uh, the needs of businesses is changing a lot. Um, how consumers are 
uh, consuming media is changing. The privacy landscape is changing. Um, so I think that means that having a culture of innovation is more important than ever because it allows teams to thrive under, you know, where, where the, the, the surf, the ground underneath them is shifting. It allows them to innovate and, and, and evolve, um, in a way that better meets the customer where they are. And if you aren't doing this, you're going to be left behind. I think the consumers have more options now than ever, uh, you know, be, with with just how e-commerce has evolved. Um, it's not, no longer is it just the, the stores in your local region that you can choose between. Now you have literally hundreds of brands that you can, you can, um, you can purchase from and if if a brand that you once loved is not keeping pace with the, this evolving landscape i do think uh that brand will will not be around for long definitely definitely and also uh, i think as well that that reframing of it to an innovative culture as well also allows people to recognize the importance of internal innovation as well internal processes being improved finding new efficiencies finding new ways of actually doing the work as well and that is incredibly valuable to a business um, and that's something the marketing team should be looking at the cmos and marketing teams should be looking into constantly as well it's not just about the innovations they're putting out into the world in terms of like reaching the customer it's also what are they doing internally to make sure they're doing the good work they need to be doing awesome i don't think we need to do a response from me because i think it still applies to the response i gave to your original intro yep. um but yeah okay cool um so do you want to redo the um discussion around creative cultures and innovative cultures, or are you happy to move on at this point? I'm I guess I'll look for feedback from you. If you want me to do that again, if it was clunky at all, I can do it again. If you thought it was fine and will resonate, then we can move on. I think I think it was fine. Um, yeah, let's keep going, right, shall great. we? Um, okay. Yeah. So, um, so Bob, um, I think as when it comes to discussing innovative or creative cultures, there, there can be some misconceptions around what they actually mean, what they actually look like for a business. Um, for me personally, I think people often get get them conflated with creative environments. Like people have this image in the head of like the Google campuses that were all the rage in like the 2010s and stuff like that, where people were going to offices that had slides and ball pits and stuff like that. And people think that's what it means by a creative culture is like basically turning your office into a playroom. But I, I think that is a major misconception because it really misses the mark on what we're talking about today in terms of those different types of creativity, the need for flexible creativity. Not every creative is going to enjoy sitting right next to a pinball machine all day. They they, they might prefer to be working in a very sterile environment because that's just the way they're, they're creative. What are your thoughts on sort of misconceptions around what it means to have an innovative or creative culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot there to unpack, but my, my where my head goes initially is that one a different misconception around this which is that in, innovative cultures or innovative moments have to be flashy or big brand campaign moments um or require a massive amount of spend to jumpstart a new a, a new channel if that that was where the innovation was coming from these can all be great and and can serve a great purpose on moving the brand forward um and catching the consumer's attention but what I found is oftentimes the most, but they're oftentimes short-lived, um, right? It's a, a flash in the pan moment and you get some value from it, but it doesn't have the staying power that other types of innovations might have um, that, that, are, that may be a little bit less sexy, but they reset the baseline. 
um, for you know how consumers are engaging with the brand and can be more permanent. So an example of this might be something as simple and maybe boring as creating a new onboarding flow for email campaigns when customers first engage with a brand that is more tailored to various customer segments. Um, if something like that leads to a five or ten percent lift in repeat rate for for customers versus the 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 previous baseline approach, that that innovation is permanent and and really much more impactful than something that maybe drove a temporary twenty percent lift in traffic, but then you fell back to the baseline. Um, so that is one um, I think misconception, and I think leads a lot of marketers and brands to you know focus more on campaigns and splashy moments and maybe a little bit less attention on how you go after you know the these different touch points in a more nuanced way that will improve the full baseline and ultimately i think you need to do both things but avoiding um the temptation of always going after shiny objects um is is that what i think any good marketer needs to be on the lookout for definitely definitely that's like Creativity doesn't mean we all have to be Don Draper coming up with these big eureka moments in the boardroom and like coming up with a fantastic campaign based on something they wrote down on a cocktail napkin or something like that. It can be these minor small wins and they do add up to a much greater hold than then maybe just like these flash in the pan kind of things that you say, Bob. So you said you need to be doing all things. So it, clearly you need to balance your team pretty well in terms of having people who can facilitate these different types of creativity within there. Like, do you need to have a team that runs that full spectrum of like those highly technical marketers all the way through to blue sky thinkers like does it need to be that diverse like to have all the bases covered or can you sort of walk a bit of a middle ground in terms of the terms of the teams you're building to address these different needs for the business yeah that's um you know a great question i think it's a little bit it's a little bit of both where I think first off, you do have to have the right ingredients um, uh, on the team side. You need to have, I think, whether it's a very creative innovation agenda or a more technical innovation agenda, either way, in, in all cases, you need you know people who care about the brand and the business, who care about the customer and who are inherently driven and high achievers. Right. You you want ideally you want people where they're treating it not just as a job, but something they're passionate about. This makes it more fun and I think makes it more sustainable uh, because you're getting, you know, everyone's building off each other's energy. Um, and then within that, you need to have those those people with those attributes, but also the right mix of skill sets on the team, whether that is more analytical skills, technical skills. Uh, creative skills or you know brand strategy skills. Um, you these are all to me the core ingredients. And the ratios of all those skill sets may vary depending on the company and the medium term needs that that they're facing. But from there, the way I think about it is, if you have the right team in place, the next step is making sure you're creating the right environment for these teams to thrive. Um, and the things I've tried to instill in in my teams are one non-hierarchical teams and organizations. Obviously there's some organizational hierarchy, but you want people to feel like it's a safe environment, no matter what level you are, 
to raise up ideas, to bubble up problems that they're seeing uh, or challenges they're trying to overcome. Um, because not only will this get you to the best answers, it's also motivating for those folks who are at more junior levels. And it vastly increases buy-in when you do align on what the priorities are. Um, I think the second step for the environment you're creating um, is creating an environment that uh, really signals that innovation is important. And the way I would do that is thinking about testing and learning, uh, really ensuring that everyone on the team uh, understands that their role is to, you know, not only run the business and be operational excellent every day, but to think about what their learning agenda is. What are the tests that they're going to run to improve our baseline, as we talked about before, to, to get to make sure we're always getting better at our craft. Um, and then maybe the final thing I'd put in there uh, in terms of creating a, you know, a, a culture in an environment that is very innovative is ensuring everyone understands their core mission and the problem that we are trying to solve as a group and that how that gets translated to that individual team or that individual person um, so that they are clear on what outcomes are trying to drive, whether that be specific KPIs or specific milestones. And I think if they understand all that, they're going to make more they're going to make better decisions every day uh, locally that requires less input from the senior team. Um, so those are those are to me the the baseline uh, approaches I take to all teams as it relates to creative innovative environments um, and and cultures that are continuously improving and testing new things to get you know better every day. Um, I'm happy to talk about then some of the nuances between highly technical marketing teams as versus uh, teams that are more brand focused or more creative in nature. Definitely, definitely. I'd, yeah, I definitely want to dig into that in just a little bit, Bob. But I just wanted to touch on some of the points you're making there. That, um, yeah, the the uh, I feel like a, a good innovative creative culture definitely is one that encourages buy-in from people because that's how you get the most creativity out of people. Is people who are passionate about something. Like if you are just turning up for a job, like you are just going to tick the boxes. You're not going to look at how you're going to move the needle. You're going to move things forwards because you don't see any kind of benefit to it. One thing that I do think needs to be recognized though when we're talking about this kind of like energy passion buy-in kind of thing is recognizing that some people can display that energy and passion in different ways you know, like not everyone's going to be the person who's in the meetings like jazzing everyone up talking really loudly like we need to have space for those introverted people who might be as equally passionate they just show it in different ways and display it in different ways i think having that space within a creative team within a creative culture to facilitate those different types of approaches to work is going to be incredibly important to have that kind of diverse range of roles and diverse range of approaches that you need to be able to hit those different types of uh, tasks that marketing needs to fulfill within a business. Like, as you said, like highly technical teams, these kind of brand creative teams, they're going to naturally attract different people, I think. So let, let's dig into the kind of nuances that you see between these different types of marketing teams and how CMOs can really manage the different, yeah, manage the nuances of managing both teams at once kind of thing, because that's got to be a major challenge. Yeah, no, it is. It, it just requires a bit of a nuanced approach. Maybe the first thing I'll do is address kind of how I try to, and, and I think never mastered this craft, because I think it's a bit of 
uh, in art as well, which is how do you manage the diverse personalities that you may have as it relates to creating an innovative culture? Um, you know, it's easy to say, hey, we're non-hierarchical and we want great ideas coming from any direction. But if the way the only way you're facilitating um, that is through live uh, meetings, uh, sometimes that you know doesn't draw the best thinking out of some of the brightest minds because those are environments where they're maybe not as quick on their toes um, or they're as comfortable sharing ideas. So what I would try to do at times is give um, multiple forums for these ideas to be surfaced. Sometimes it would be more um, giving people a heads up that we're trying to work through this problem and giving people space a couple of days to come back with their thoughts in written form. Or maybe it is still in a live session, but they've been able to gather their thoughts and structure beforehand so that it's not all live on the toe thinking. Then, of course, there are some people that do their best thinking live, building off each other's uh, ideas. So that's where I think live sessions, ideally in person, um, something you and I had talked about earlier, which is the challenge of driving um, innovation and, you know, brainstorming sessions when everyone's remote. I think video conferences inherently, um, people subconsciously just want them to be over. And I think you know, so so therefore, there's just quick quicker agreement and less um, desire for people to build on other people's um, you know uh, seeds of an idea. Uh, whereas, I, I, I think it, having I think, sorry, Bob, I think it's awkwardness as well. Like, like when you're in like a room together brainstorming, you're you're allowed to like sit and just think and like allow the silence and let ideas develop. But when you're on a Zoom call or something, like it's very, very awkward to be sat there and no one's talking and everyone's just looking at each other in a way that you don't always get in in person. Like, I think that's something that needs to be recognized as well. Like that that awkwardness of just sitting on a Zoom call and it's dead silence. Whereas like when you're in a room, you can almost feel the gears turning in people's heads when they're they're coming up with ideas. And it's a little less a little less pressure on you to like just make noise and try and get the meeting over and done with. That's right. And I think that this, the presenter, for lack of a better term, when you're in person is getting um, kind of nonverbal feedback and where, where people are head nodding or like really giving them their full attention. And it's clear that they like what they're hearing. And whereas I think oh, that same person over a Zoom call um, isn't getting that. And, and it requires uh, deep confidence for someone to go through like tee up an idea over Zoom and then see it through. And, and most people aren't that confident. And so they 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 may just hold back on sharing that um, that idea that they're not sure if it's a good or bad one because the last time they brought one up, they didn't see any head nods and people didn't build on it just, just because of the format being a video call versus in person. Um, getting back to what we were, we were talking about in terms of how do you get the you know the best innovation out of different team makeups um you know one way you could we talked a little bit about different personality types um and how to you know create different environments for different personality types to bring up ideas whether that's through you know um giving them multiple days of a head start to think about their ideas so they are prepared when the, the live meeting happens or whether it's just simply cold calling on someone to say, what do you think? How have you been thinking about this? Knowing, signaling to them that their opinion matters. We want to hear from them as well. Um, and you'll call on them if they're not volunteering those ideas. Um, the, the other, in addition to personality, 
you know, most marketing teams are made up of, you know, many, many sub teams. And one way I would break down my organization was by technical marketing teams and then more brand and creative marketing teams. Ultimately, they're not like completely juxtapose and and but but for the sake of this conversation, um, I might break them apart that way and and kind of talk about how I would think about driving innovation across those two teams. So on a on a technical marketing team, this would be one where you're heavily reliant on advertising technology, where you're heavily reliant on maybe algorithms and and math in order to drive breakthroughs and manage that channel. Something like uh, paid search or Google shopping or retargeting or even email. Um, There's a lot of elements of those channels that are quite technical. Um, And then I'll juxtapose that with these brand or creative teams. This might be something like television advertising or organic social marketing. where a lot of the work and innovation is going to be through, you know, the the campaign itself and the creative execution and how we're going to present the brand um, and the look and feel of it and and present the value props and really tell our brand story. Um, so maybe I'll start with the technical marketing team. Mm-hmm. When I think of the innovation that we would drive on those teams, as I mentioned, a lot of it was about creating new technical capabilities, um, maybe leveraging personalization in a new way uh, where, where we're capturing new new data sources and um, presenting that in a, in a new fashion. Uh, maybe it was about um, refining how we were setting our bids for uh, Google Shopping to be more tied to the profitability of that keyword when people come in for, from that keyword. In those environments, I think the the innovation um, is it requires a pretty deep understanding of the current capabilities that we have, and then the capabilities we need to go after that the hypothesis we have on um, making that channel work more effectively. Uh, ultimately, you know, going into that innovation, deciding if we're going to do it requires that understanding to say, is it feasible that we can create this capability? That's kind of a binary question. And then and then not only if it's feasible, how hard is it? How much effort will it take us to, 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 to execute on this and then put a test in market? And that test may be something that um, we can quickly operationalize if it wins. Other times it may be a proof of concept. But I think at their core, a lot of these innovative ideas are not that subjective. The answer is quite objective. Once you have the idea and test it, it's 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 either a win or a loss, or what we would say it's either a win or we learn something. Um, and 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 again, it's 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 much more subjective. And but it does require a lot of the discussion generally orients around the technical capabilities that we need to build out, and the how we'll get it done is where the innovation comes comes through. Whereas on the creative and brand side of things, um, I think it requires a deep understanding of the brand, a deep understanding of the customer, um, understanding what our brand objectives are at the moment, um, and then ultimately brainstorming different ways that we can present that you know present the brand. Um, and I think those brainstorming sessions are much looser. Right. And I think they're more iterative where people are putting out ideas. There's generally a brief involved and then people are putting ideas and and it's much more iterative and it requires maybe a bit more time for the idea to marinate and to, to get 
more buy-in across a large set of stakeholders. Um, but ultimately, when you get to the moment of launch, you're making a bet on on kind of subjectivity, right? It's it, you're kind of you 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 think it's going to do well, and and you're placing a bet on it. Um, but ultimately, you go to market, and um, you're not sure if it's going to work. And and even that feedback loop, whether it worked or not, is a little bit more subjective as well, because maybe it moves some brand metrics, but it takes a long time to really see whether that happened. Um, so I just think inherently there's creating a brainstorming session around a technical topic or a brand and creative topic, the way you structure that inherently needs to be a bit different. Definitely, definitely. To my mind, it, in an ideal world, I would want all marketing teams, no matter the type, to have access to all of this, what I'm about to say. But I think in terms of what you need to prioritize for those different types of teams, I think for a technical team, you really need to prioritize giving them the tools and the spaces to actually test and experiment with things, to go out and break stuff if necessary, to really find those technical innovations they need to, to drive things forward. Whereas for maybe a brand creative team, I think the most important thing is time, that space to really like let ideas generate and develop and, and have those kinds of brainstorming sessions where there isn't necessarily a set time limit, where you can just sit down in front of a whiteboard and really let everyone bring all these ideas to the table. So, I mean, obviously I would want both teams to have access to all of them, but I'm thinking if you're a CMO, you really need to prioritize certain things that are available to your teams. I think those should be the top priorities. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Bob, um, if that agrees with what you were talking about then. It does. I think what's common in both of them is both teams need kind of permission to do new things, right? They need kind of permission to know that it's a safe space to try to test a new campaign concept or to test a new uh, technical capability. And that your job as the leader is to help one, give them permission, but then help them uh, re remove roadblocks or you know the challenges that may get in the way from them executing on that. And giving them the confidence that if we run this test and it's a success, we're gonna party, right? And if we run this test, uh, or this campaign or whatever it is, and it's and it fails, like we will have learned a lot from that process and that's okay too. We're gonna celebrate those learnings. I think that's true for both of these, um, you know, both of these th themes. Definitely, definitely. And celebrating those learnings, I think is always gonna be important in driving uh, innovative culture. Like if you're not giving people the kudos they deserve, they're not gonna keep bringing new ideas to the table. So it's, it's very important to have those, that celebrations, even if it's, as you said, um, something that might seem like a minor innovation, it's always worth calling that out and shouting that out, especially if it's had a positive impact on the business. Absolutely. Um, so Bob, um, we're, we've been talking about this in terms of having these separate technical teams and creative teams and in an ideal world i would love every cmo out there to have the budget to be able to hire these teams of specialists but that isn't the reality for a lot of marketing organizations for a lot of companies right now is it possible to have a creative culture that allows you to sort of code switch between those different styles can you be flexible with your culture while you're applying it to the team or do you really need to sort of break it out into those two different approaches and two different teams that are quite juxtaposed kind of thing as you said before yeah, I think it's you can absolutely do it with very small teams. And I think most um most people are capable of wearing many different hats. Uh these these when I actually think about the reality, we we kind of broke these two apart and for the sake of this discussion, 
but I think normally it's much more blended. And I'd say for my first many years at Wayfair, it was such a small team that everyone was wearing both a brand hat as well as a technical analyst hat. Um, you know, and we were all in the same room. Um, I think there's there there's advantages to have, having a very small team, which is that everyone can be in the room, everyone can work each problem together. Um, they may be contributing more on one topic type than another, but ultimately they're they're in the room for both type discussion types. Um, that that gets more buy-in. They learn a lot more that way, and I think it just actually creates a a, a very fun environment. Um, I think when you get to a certain scale, more specialization is required. When you're at a certain scale, it's there's there's too many things you need to get done uh, for everyone to be in the room all the time. Um, so it's almost out of necessity that you have too big of an agenda that you need to start breaking teams apart. And the CMO or the, you know the senior marketing team, their job is to connect the dots between teams and make sure every team has a little bit of context of what's going on across uh, each of the different objectives. Uh, I, but, I but everyone inherently on. can't be in the. Oh yeah, I was going to say, but everyone inherently can't be in the room for all topics because uh, there's just not enough time in the day. Definitely. I mean, as you said, your your team at Wayfair went from fifteen to over a thousand people. So I can't imagine you being able to approach things as you started the way the way things were when you reach your end of your your time at Wayfair. You've got to adapt your your leadership style. I can't imagine getting a thousand marketers in a room together for a big brainstorming session. That would be. That'd be chaos, be like herding cats, surely. Um, yeah, but when, when it was 15, it was very easy. And we did do that. And, and, and in those days, I thought of everyone as being a jack of all trades, mm -hmm. right? Everyone needed to be a well-rounded athlete. Um, and then over time, it became clear that we required, we, we needed to bring in more specialization. Um, we needed to, we didn't have a data science team early on. Um, everyone just would would kind of wear a mini data science hat as best as they could. We didn't have, um, you know, brand specialists. We didn't have a lot of these sub functions that 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 at a certain size and scale are are critical to have in house. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I suppose it's more about, uh, particularly in those early stage um, phases when you have a small team, it's more about teaching people different ways of being innovative for different objectives and different tasks, kind of thing, making them aware of okay. This is how we need to be thinking about the brand objectives. This is how you need to be thinking about how we're approaching the more technical side of things. And this is how you can kind of find the space to switch between them. I think that's going to be the responsibility of a CMO is giving that kind of ability and awareness to their teams in terms of the training, in terms of the L&D, and in terms of like just how you lead the teams and these different objectives and campaigns that you might be working on. Like If you're leading from the front and showing that you're able to get in the weeds in terms of the technical side of things, like being able to run these kinds of experiments that need to happen. It's going to teach them how to do that. When it comes to the more brand creative side of things, if you're able to open things up, show that kind of like flexible approach to working, it's going to encourage them to do that as well. Um, and I think there's going to be a benefit to keeping that kind of ethos to some extent as a company develops. I think it's going to be important for the marketing team in terms of how they develop as, as marketers as, uh, into potential leaders is to have them be aware of those different ways of being creative in those different environments and having them be a part in building those different cultures as well. Yeah, couldn't agree. Uh, couldn't agree more. So when it, when it comes to this, this approach to creative cultures, is it 
or innovative cultures, as you said at the top of the episode, is it something we can measure and monitor and improve over time? Because we're marketers at the end of the day, like we love our KPIs, we love our OKRs. Is there is there a way that you can really sort of quantify the impact that your approach of building these kinds of cultures is having on a business? Is it something you can really show in terms of metrics and stuff like that? I think certainly. I mean, I think on one dimension, you're able to, a lot of these things we were talking about today um, are testable, right? It's, and so the impact it has on the business and the brand is is a knowable thing. So if your job in creating these, you know, in, innovative cultures is kind of getting a lot of tests out the door, you know, keeping track of the wins and in, in the, in the, quote unquote learnings, um, you know, is going to give you something that's very measured. You're going to see how, how many, how much value those wins stacked up for the organization. And then you'd say, hey, if we didn't have an innovative culture, how many of those tests would we have actually launched? If we were just running things, running our channels and our our brands the way we always had, you know, and we we took away the the lift we got in repeat rate or the lift in traffic we got from that in, innovation, you know, that's that delta is 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 the value you drove. I think in terms of the team itself, um, you know, I think generally people are much more engaged and happy when you're winning and you're and you're and they're they're finding um they're running tests and, and those are leading to breakthroughs. And I think you could see that through your your internal engagement scores if you run surveys on on team engagement and MPS. Um, so that, that would be in addition to that, just the brand outcomes and, the and the sales outcomes that you're driving from these tests. So I think absolutely you can, uh, create a, you know, feedback loop and build confidence that if you're creating a culture that is innovative, um, you, you know, you'll see it both on the business side, uh, but also on the, the engagement levels of the team. Yeah, and I think that again that goes back to what we were saying about celebrating even those minor wins as well. Like if you if you're actively and proactively celebrating the innovations that your team are bringing to the table, it'll make it a lot easier for you to keep track of all these innovations and really like quant and add them all up at the end of the day. Like if you've got all these minor wins that on paper on an individual basis they might not seem that significant, but if you add them all up at say the end of a quarter or the end of a year. You're going to see that impact on a much larger and a much grander scale in terms of how the innovative culture is having and being able to know where to look for those starts with celebrating them as well like if you just let them pass by you're not going to know to go back to a certain slack message or something or go back to a certain minor campaign or, or experiment that someone's been running in the background like having that culture of celebration i think is very important for innovative cultures and i think it just makes it a lot easier to keep track of the innovations as well yeah and i think that's right and i think the other benefit you get from keeping track of them is you know there's a lot of institutional knowledge that you create around you know what types of thing resonates with the customers what type of copy you know what type of landing pages and so over time as you run a lot of tests your kind of intuition um on what types of things will work future tests that you know uh that will work or maybe wouldn't work gets better and better so your your um your batting average uh, to use a, a term that's probably not relevant to the the non-americans listening to this <laughs> but but goes up because again you kind of understand that hey if we're the more we can tailor the messaging to a customer based on their past purchase history right 
we generally found that those were wins almost always. So if we're choosing between two tests or two agendas, one that's going to more tailor the message through like just personalization and another one that's maybe just a, a different spin on copy, I would put my bet on that personalized thing every time because we learned that nine out of 10 personalization tests where we, you know, we're, we're doing that better were wins. Um, whereas on average, most of the the things we tested had about, you know, we always thought a, a 30% win rate was a pretty good one. So we'd rather test a lot of things. And, and, and if we if three out of 10 of those tests are big wins, we would say that was successful. But on personalization, the odds of it being a success were much, much higher. And that was something we learned over time. Definitely, definitely. And then speaking of learning over time and making these small improvements, I think that equally applies to when we're talking about creative cultures and innovative cultures as well. Like, I don't think anyone has a hundred percent perfect innovative culture at their business. If, if you think you do reach out to me, let me know. I want to, I want to hear all about <laughs> what you're doing right there. Um, but it's always going to be something that's going to be improved over time. And you can always make these small improvements. You don't have to be bringing in like these big flashy things, as we said at the start of the episode, to really improve an innovative culture. You don't have to be taking them off to like art museums for inspiration every week or something like that. Although I think that would be really cool for marketing teams. I'm a big fan of that idea. But it can be just like these minor improvements, like like just having like a, a coffee break in the morning where people can chat and go over ideas together. It can be a minor thing like giving people a little bit extra time to work on briefs or something like that. It can be all these minor things that can add up to a really, really effective, innovative culture. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Bob? I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think at, at its core, creating an innovative culture is about giving permission and signaling and say, th saying through words and actions that, you know, we want to be testing and learning all the time and we want to be continuously improving. And that, and so that means that even as a leader, you just have to test different techniques to try to get people's creative juices flowing. Um, and then obviously we didn't talk about this too much, but you have to balance all this, this testing agenda with, you know, running things day to day really well. Um, that would be maybe one other point I'd love to like put out there, which is operational excellence, right? Like basically running the day-to-day -day business really well. Um, I always felt was critically important to having a great innovative culture, because if you're running things really well, that means you probably have good ideas of where innovations and breakthroughs can come from to improve performance. Um, if you ran your innovation you know, you had a separate innovation and strategy team that wasn't responsible for running the business at all. And all they did was come up with ideas. Their intuition on what will work and what won't and what's important, you know, uh, in how to prioritize things just won't be as good versus people that are actually operating the business. So that would be just, again, one other thing that I, I found to be quite important. Um, you know, if you bring someone new to the organization and they're just, they just want to think about innovation and new strategies and stuff, odds are their ideas aren't going to be as good as someone that's been running um, part of that organization for a year or two, because again, they'll have more uh, just better into learned intuition. Definitely. Definitely. And we're sort of almost at the, the golden age of, having those kinds of operationalized processes, those kinds of day-to-day -day tasks, a lot of them, once you have a deep understanding of them, can be automated, which should free up the people who are 
in charge of those tasks to really think about how can we improve things? How can we find new ways of improving the processes? And I think that's one of the big benefits of stuff like AI, stuff like marketing automation is to free up these creative thinkers to really think about how can we improve the processes? How can we improve other parts of the business as well? Um, so yeah, um, really, really glad you mentioned that there at the end there, Bob. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Um, Bob, I think that's a great note to end it on there. Um, I, there's probably so much more we could explore in terms of the, the different psychologies of workers and different, yeah, going right into like the different environments and stuff. But I think we've we've covered a lot of ground here, Bob. So thank you very much for joining us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. As I said at the top of the episode, it's one that I'm very passionate about, this kind of empowering teams. So thank you very much for your, your thoughts and insights today, Bob. Yeah, happy to share, you know, my my point of view. I know there's a lot of other great ideas out there and how to do this even better. Um, but it was a pleasure talking to you today, Will, and I appreciate uh, the time. Well, thank you, Bob. And and speaking of other perspectives on these ideas, you're actually going to be taking part in a panel for the uh, the CMO Summit on the 8th of November on uh, the topic of empowering teams. Um, I'm really excited about this talk. Um, I've spoken to a few of the other speakers. It sounds like they've got some great perspectives. Um, what are you most interested in taking away from that panel? What do you think other people should be really looking forward to in terms of the discussions that are going to be coming up there? I think the first thing I'm excited about is I'm getting to play your role a bit and in terms of facilitating the conversation and don't have to listen to myself speak as much as today. So we'll be hearing a lot more from other marketers and I'll be more so facilitating the conversation. So that's one part. Otherwise, um, I'm 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 really excited to hear from the panel on uh you know, what it really takes to create a, a diverse and well-balanced marketing organization. And we had a introductory call the other day and, you know, it was just 30 minutes and, but, but the, the number of great ideas that I heard and, and many debates that we had that were really constructive um, in a short 30 minute call was, was really exciting. So I, I can't wait till that, um, that, that panel in, in a few weeks time. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. There'll be a link for where people can find how, how to get tickets, how to sign up for the panels um, in the show notes. I, I very much encourage people to check it out. Um, besides Bob's talk, there's going to be loads and loads of really awesome stuff there. Um, I'm really excited for it. Um, but I want to go back to thanking you for your time today, Bob. Thank you very much for sharing your insights and sharing your your anecdotes. Um, I, I, As I said, love this topic and i know it's absolutely essential for cmos and marketing leaders right now um, and i want to thank our audience for joining us as well i hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as me uh, we'll be back soon with some more cmo combos like what you heard in this cmo combo make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating so the whole world knows how great it was